Welcome to episode two of our podcast series on the duty to consult doctrine from the Center for Constitutional Studies, located on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta. In our previous podcast, we heard from Professor Eric Adams, who talked about what the duty to consult doctrine is and its underlying principles. Today, we talked to Professor John Barrows about Indigenous law and how it relates to the duty to consult doctrine. In our previous podcast, we talked about what the duty to consult doctrine is, its underlying principles, and how it fits into the Constitution of Canada. Today, we are shifting gears to understand what the duty to consult means in Indigenous law. And we're excited to have as our guest, Professor John Barrows. Professor Barrows is a member of the Chippewa of the Nawash First Nation in Ontario. He is currently a law professor at the University of Victoria Law School and holds the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Law. Professor Barrows, it is such a pleasure to speak with you today. So I introduce myself as Giganos, that's my Anishinaabe name, that means speaker, and it's my third great-grandfather's name that I carry. And Nigigan uh, Dodem, I'm from the Otter Clan, and so I introduce myself in that way. And Neashiwinigaming and Donjaba, so I'm from the Portage Point in Ontario, which is about three hours north of Toronto, four hours north of Detroit, on the on Georgian Bay, the Saugeen Peninsula. But today I'm speaking to you from Victoria, which is in Wissanich um, and uh, Lenkwangan-speaking territory. And I'm grateful to live and work and play on these territories. Thank you. Well, we may as well dive right into this. So I want to begin our conversation by starting with the basics. What is Indigenous law? So Indigenous law is the standards and criteria that Indigenous peoples use to make decisions. Right? People don't just act in a free-for-all way in societies. There's patterns of order that enable people to make decisions that have some legitimacy. And so Indigenous law is standards, principles, criteria, authority, precedents, measures, signposts, guideposts for regulating our affairs, uh, making decisions, and resolving our disputes. In other words, if we think about law in a functional way, the function of Indigenous law is to allow Indigenous peoples to have criteria that they look to in uh, making their decisions. So where, where do Indigenous laws come from? What are the sources of Indigenous law? So there are many different sources to Indigenous law because the criteria that we can access are quite broad. Just like in Canadian law, when you think about the different sources, we have legislation, common law, judicial decisions. We have what happens when people are making contracts, which is they participate in the making of that law together through their negotiation or with torts. There's involuntary obligations that we have. There's just duties that we're expected to abide by so that we don't cause harm to others. Same within Indigenous law, right? Some of those laws come to us from negotiated uh, contexts. Uh, some laws come to us because of the obligations that are there that are a part of our duties of care to one another and to the broader land. Um, we can think about these laws 
having different time depths. Some of these laws are from a time beyond time. They flow from our creation stories, our sacred stories, uh, how we came into our territories, how we got to know one another and got to know the creatures on the land. And there are standards and principles and criteria and authority that are attached to those stories. Uh, some of our laws come from our experience with the land, um, understanding that we um, are in a relationship with the land. And so we read it, the rivers and the waters and the um, the birds and the plants and the animals, and we take analogies from those behaviors or distinguish ourselves from those behaviors. And so the literacy of Indigenous law in that way is, is literally written on the earth. The legal archive is actually what you see outside your door. And then, of course, people have to reason about this and persuade one another as to what the animals or the birds or the plants or the waters might be teaching us or what might be coming to us from those older stories. And in reasoning together about those things, we have to persuade one another. And in persuading one another, you have deliberation. And deliberation then means that the traditions are living traditions because you can't just persuade by which once was once upon a time important to our peoples it's also what's important to us today and so you would take the past and you would intermingle it with the present concerns of say administrative law or human rights or gender can be a part of this contemporary living deliberation or persuasion or or talking with one another of course some of our laws can be put into legislation into regulation you can have tribal courts that um, will deliberate about what the meaning of a, a case or a position might be. Um, you also find laws that are customary, that are long time patterns of doing things. So there are many different opportunities, alternatives that Indigenous peoples have in making law, just as the, is the case with the common law. It's a rich and vibrant set of legal traditions uh, that come from 11 different language families across the country. That's incredible. And and it sounds to me like Indigenous legal traditions, they they may have their footing in history, but they're still alive and well and and evolving with the times. Is, is that accurate? That's right. You have to have the past that speaks to the present that directs us into the future. And so there's this conversation across the generations with Indigenous law, just as is the case with the civil law, or the common law or canon law or military law. That is, unless you're speaking in the present, um, your law becomes uh, um, without authority. And so here the idea is that tradition can be the dead faith of living people or the living faith of dead people. And what we're trying to do is take those traditions and make them living today as, as opposed to the, the dead faith of living people. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, though, how is Indigenous law different from Aboriginal law? So Aboriginal law is the law that the Canadian state uses to interact with Indigenous peoples. And so Aboriginal law can include um, Aboriginal and treaty rights, which are constitutionalized in Section 35.1 of uh, the Constitution. It can also include legislative provisions that say, for instance, have recently given effect to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And so Aboriginal law is Canadian law that's dealing with Indigenous peoples, whereas Indigenous law is the law that flows 
from Indigenous people's own decision-making structures, political structures, and of course, that interacts with Aboriginal law because Indigenous law is a part of um, the Canadian state's relationship with, uh, with Indigenous peoples. So then going back to the theme of this podcast series, which is the duty to consult doctrine, the duty to consult then is, is Aboriginal law and, and it should incorporate Indigenous legal perspectives in, in understanding that. Is that accurate? That's right. The duty to consult has been developed by the Canadian courts, the Supreme Court of Canada in particular, and that law flows from the understood relationship between the Canadian state and Indigenous peoples. And um, Indigenous law gets included in Aboriginal law because you can't have a relationship, Canada cannot have a relationship with Indigenous peoples without including Indigenous law. So there's a case that came out of the Supreme Court of Canada in 1996, it's called the Queen versus Vanderpeet. And there in that case was a framework to understand Aboriginal rights, those rights that are recognized and affirmed under Section 35.1 of Canada's Constitution. And they said, in order to understand Aboriginal rights, a morally and politically defensible conception of those rights would take account of both legal perspectives, both the perspective of the common law and the perspective of Indigenous peoples. So a morally and politically defensible conception of Aboriginal rights has to take account of Indigenous uh, legal perspectives. Now, those aren't determinative, just as the common law is not determinative. What the court has said is that this area of law is a bridge between Indigenous legal cultures and common law legal cultures. And on this bridge, the court calls this area of law sui generis, meaning it's unique or of its own kind. And so it's unique or of its own kind because the law intermingles the common law and Indigenous law in that space. Um, in other court cases, the Supreme Court of Canada said that the purpose of Section 35.1 of the Constitution is reconciliation, which is this reconciliation of these Indigenous legal perspectives with Crown uh, assertions of sovereignty and their perspectives on that ground. So the duty to consult has to take account of both uh, perspectives, the Indigenous legal perspectives and the Crown's legal perspectives here to get to reconciliation. So in that regard, um, in both Aboriginal law, that is Canadian law, dealing with Aboriginal peoples, um, has a part of Indigenous law embedded in it. And then, of course, when Indigenous peoples come to this Canadian law, they bring their own um, legal traditions, which is a part of that formulation of the duty to consult. Right? It's about reciprocity. It's about mutuality. You can't have reciprocity. You cannot have mutuality without having Indigenous law as a part of this uh, area. So Aboriginal rights are recognized and affirmed in, in Section 35 of, of the Constitution. Now, are Indigenous laws considered Aboriginal rights? That's a good question that the court's not been explicit about. We do not know whether or not the court considers Indigenous law to be also Aboriginal rights that are recognized and affirmed in Section 35.1 of the Constitution. We do know that when Indigenous peoples present evidence about whether or not they have Aboriginal rights or treaty rights, that Indigenous peoples use their own law 
to make those arguments that the crown has an obligation. And so it's definitely indirectly a part of uh, Canada's law. I would argue that it's necessary to have Indigenous law in order to have Aboriginal and treaty rights be recognized and affirmed. But the court has not drawn that explicit connection yet. They just allow for that law to give meaning to Aboriginal and treaty rights at this point. That sounds like a very complicated and um, uncertain approach to the place of Indigenous law within the Canadian Constitution. Um, can you elaborate a bit more on that relationship between the two? Yes, I think one of the things that the Canadian courts have been hesitant to express themselves on is whether or not Indigenous peoples have governmental authority or jurisdictional authority that would have some constraints on provincial or federal authority. And so not wanting to um, be explicit about that, um, the courts therefore talk about Indigenous perspectives on law, or the duty to consult and accommodate Indigenous peoples when their rights may be affected. It would be much easier, less confusing if at some point the court would recognize Indigenous peoples have a government, they have jurisdiction, from this governance and jurisdiction arises decision-making that uh, is law, and that law then gets incorporated into our constitutional fabric. Uh, but because they don't say that directly, um, it looks more confusing than it needs to be. Um, and so that is, uh, is the situation we're currently in. Now, I, I want to pivot slightly to ask you to put these ideas into context and into the duty to consult context. So are you able to provide an example of an Indigenous law that might conflict with a development project? Yes, um, there is a case that came out of Ontario uh, called the Chippewa of the Thames. It was signed, not signed, it was decided at the same time as the Clyde River decision, which is an Inuit decision. Both of these communities, Inuit and uh, Anishinaabe um, wanted to uh, stop development. And the Anishinaabe people around London, Ontario, the Chippewa of the Thames, um, said that the pipeline that was being proposed to be extended, broadened, widened there um, um, needed the um, accommodation, needed to accommodate uh, Anishinaabe rights in the area. And so we brought our treaty relationships out there, our Treaty of Niagara from 1764, the treaties that were signed in the early 1800s with the Crown, uh, talking about our relationship with the plants and animals, et cetera. And um, we said the pipeline can't go forward without uh, citing these agreements and, and renewing these agreements. And when the Supreme Court of Canada, in this case from 2017, I believe, Chippewa of the Thames Clyde River case, um, said, well, we will allow the, the National Energy Board uh, to be able to be the crown for the purposes of consultation and accommodation. And there's no need for um, this renewal from, say, an executive level or a legislative level of a ceremonial uh, understanding of what the relationship might be. And so we were opposed to that uh, pipeline 
being changed without Anishinaabe law, being re-engaged uh, through the, the historic and contemporary treaty processes. But the court said, no, the National Energy Board can take account of that on its own. Um, and so maybe in the future, the National Energy Board will pick up the methodology that we're talking about here. But at the point of that case, they did not do so. Now, there are other examples. For instance, I read today in the paper that the Niska people have agreed to uh, a huge um, multi-million, maybe even billion dollar um, liquefied national, natural gas a project developed on the NAS lands on the Skeena River. They have a treaty there. And they said, you know, these people, these investors have met our laws uh, under our treaties. And so we're going to give them permission to uh, put uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas um, um, development uh, in our territory. So sometimes, you know, laws can be um, followed and you can get permission for development. Uh, because the consultation and consultation has been in line with both Canadian law and Indigenous law. But in that other instance, I just told you a second ago from the Chippewa of the Thames, um, there's no um, consultation that Indigenous peoples felt has been promulgated in accordance with Indigenous law. And, and that brings me to another interesting aspect is the concept of accommodation, um, where the Crown is obliged to accommodate where necessary. What is your understanding of the duty to accommodate? That's a good point. So in the Canadian legal context, the court has talked about this duty to consult and accommodate whenever there might be an Aboriginal right that is imminent or already proven. So sometimes you have a duty to consult and accommodate and the Aboriginal right has not been proven in court or sort of acknowledged by the Crown. And sometimes you have a duty to consult and accommodate and the right has been acknowledged by a court or been recognized uh, by the Crown. And the duty to consult and accommodate might differ pre-proof of the right as opposed to post-proof of the right. So there's that one component there. Now, given that there are different possibilities, what is necessary is that the Crown always has to substantially address the Aboriginal um, perspective on the meaning of the right at stake. So in all cases, the Crown has to uh, look at what that perspective is on that right and um, accommodate it. And, and, and what that means is that if the right is going to be infringed, there's a constitutional right that is being um, sort of taken away. And if you're taking away a constitutional right, um, that's a big deal. Um, it, so, you know, in, in, say, charter jurisprudence, if you have a right to equality or freedom of religion or life, liberty and security, um, or say a criminal law uh, protection, if the Crown is going to take that away, they have to justify taking that away. It has to be something that's reasonable in a free and democratic society. Well, likewise, if you're going to take an Aboriginal right away, you have to justify that. And the way you justify that is by consulting with Aboriginal peoples, hearing from them, talking with them about what that means to have their right be diminished or, or suspended for a period of time, 
and as much as possible accommodate them, that is Aboriginal peoples, so that there's as little infringement as possible, so that as much as possible that right can continue. And so the we have to remember when we're talking about a duty to consult and accommodate, we're actually talking about an infringement of an Aboriginal right. We're talking about a taking away of something that is our highest law as, as a nation of Canada. And so when I think about a duty to consult and accommodate, I'm always a little taken aback um, because I recognize that we're into the realm of diminishing something that's constitutionally protected. And so we need to very tread very carefully in that uh, place. And that's why this duty to consult and accommodate is there to ensure that we do tread carefully uh, because we're actually diminishing our highest laws whenever there is um, an infringement of an Aboriginal or a treaty right. So you use the term reasonable, uh, a reasonable infringement. Now, who decides what is reasonable? So in the Silcotine case, which is a Canadian Supreme Court of Canada case that came from the court in 2014 dealing with Aboriginal title, the court said it had to be reasonable to both Aboriginal peoples and uh, the Crown as well. So you have to take account of Aboriginal people's perspectives about what is reasonable in that instance, which again raises Indigenous law as an important component of understanding the duty to consult and accommodate, right? Indigenous peoples are reasoning about what is reasonable uh, by standards, by criteria, by authority, by precedent, uh, by measures, by signposts, by guideposts, right? By, by tradition. And these could be again uh, in their councils, uh, with legislation or documents that say here's what's required by the Crown to have an appropriate uh, consultation and accommodation with us. And so again, you can't do this duty to consult and accommodate law without thinking about Indigenous people's own law, because that's how their reasoning comes about. That's what's going to be reasonable, is what's formulated in accordance with Indigenous law. Not exclusively so, a morally and politically defensible conception of the rights will incorporate both legal perspectives, but you cannot for one second endure and ignore Indigenous legal perspectives in thinking about duty to consult and accommodate. But you have no certainty on the part of the Crown or the proponent if Indigenous peoples have not given their um, decision in accordance with their law somehow about consultation and accommodation. And, and with that in mind, in your opinion, does the duty to consult doctrine empower Indigenous communities, or does it expose some vulnerabilities? So it does both. Um, it empowers us because it shows, if you think through the logical chain of reasoning, that in juris Indigenous jurisdiction, Indigenous government, lies at the bottom of this whole process of reciprocity, mutuality, reconciliation. If we could just be clear about that, there's so many pathways to further facilitate uh, better relationships. But until we say that, and Indigenous peoples have governments that are constitutionally recognized and affirmed, we're at a great deal of vulnerability. 
uh, because the crown sets the terms of the debate. You know, having the constitutional recognized uh, section 91, section 92 under the Constitution Act 1867 authority to be able to make decisions. There's no equivalent explicitly section 35 um, power to have jurisdiction and authority there. What I appreciate is that we've now added the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples legislatively, because now the Crown, in right of the province in British Columbia, where there's legislation about UNDRIP, the Crown and right of Canada, federally speaking, has to engage with Indigenous peoples with free, prior, and informed consent whenever there is development that would impact Indigenous peoples. And that will probably change what it means to see that there's a duty to consult and accommodate, because we're adding to the duty to consult and accommodate not just Indigenous law, but also international law. We're weaving Indigenous law with domestic constitutional law, with international law, to say that the duty to consult and accommodate includes Indigenous law, and also includes this idea of free and prior and informed consent that Indigenous peoples must give whenever there's going to be a development uh, in a particular area. And again, Indigenous peoples can give that consent, as you saw with the NISCA, uh, as I mentioned in a previous example, but they might withhold that in another instance if they feel like their treaty relationships are not being properly recognized and affirmed. In other words, if they feel like the earth is not being accounted for those other treaties that we have as Indigenous peoples that try to protect those relationships. And I'm, I'm really happy that you brought up UNDRIP or the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, specifically for this idea of free, prior and informed consent, because something that has come up quite often in our conversations thus far is that the duty to consult doctrine does not include the veto. So Indigenous peoples do not have a veto power over whether projects continue or not. Um, does the concept of free, prior and informed consent, and I'm specifically emphasizing consent here, does that change the framework at all? It does change the framework. There's new concepts that are there internationally speaking uh, with those words. And then those words are also an invitation to take account of Indigenous law. Like, what, is the, what does it mean to be free in Anishinaabemwin? Well, it's Debane Nindizuin. And to be free, that word in Anishinaabemwin means to have responsibility to own your own relationships. So think about free from Anishinaabe linguistic legal perspective starts to change the way or prior, right? That uh, you would uh, get information before the final decision is made. And, and then informed, of course, is this reciprocity. There's, there's a mutuality there. And information is, is um, sort of pooling together, as it were. Now, whether or not that equals a veto, I don't think it equals a veto in Canadian law. But it might not even equal a veto in an Indigenous law, because no rights are absolute, even in Indigenous law. Um, there's probably a much greater weight, a much greater emphasis on ensuring that the land and the plants and the animals and the fish and the birds have an ability to continue to sustain themselves. So there's probably more places where you can say no. Um, because the terms of the development uh, don't properly accord with the facilitation of life 
Yet, there might be instances where you could go to the rocks, the plants, the animals, uh, in Indigenous law, in international law, in the common law, and still allow for the use of the earth, or the, the ingesting of fish, or the placing of some kind of institution or structure on that land. Um, it's always contextual, I think, in Indigenous law, in international law, and in uh, Canadian constitutional law. It always depends on the particular circumstance. To be absolute about it is to be unilateral, right? And, and to be unilateral is not the spirit of reciprocity. It's not the spirit of nation to nation. It's to try to work things out uh, in, in more nuanced ways with greater respect, of course, for Indigenous rights and Indigenous law and the earth, plants and animals. But it doesn't mean like no, never. Um, it, it might mean no, never in some contexts, uh, but not all contexts. And I think that's really, really, really important to underline is that uh, veto um, may be in some circumstances uh, there, but certainly it's not an overriding in all kinds and places. And you make it sound like the implementation of UNDRIP is, is going to be an excellent opportunity for reconciliation. And, and here I mean reconciliation as reconciling the Crown and Indigenous perspectives. And, and you leave me actually quite inspired and hopeful that this would be, or this will be, a, a big step. Yeah, I think it is a very positive thing. Now, now, it could be a disaster. It could just be, you know, um, window dressing and then people ignore UNDRIP. But what it does is it invites Indigenous peoples into a deeper relationship in the legislative process. About four years ago, there was a case that came out of the Supreme Court of Canada uh, called the Miccosoo Cree case. This is the second time that Miccosoo Cree case, Miccosoo uh, Cree got Supreme Court of Canada. But in that case, the court said that there was no legislative, no obligation that the Crown had to consult and accommodate Indigenous peoples when legislation was being um, developed. So there's no duty the court says that is uh, there. But with UNDRIP, clauses of the United Nations Declaration say that uh, the governments have an obligation to have free prior informed consent when legislative decisions will impact uh, Aboriginal peoples. And so now with UNDRIP, there's, like I said, there's this invitation for Indigenous peoples to get involved in the legislative process. And that gives me some um, hope because then you can create other bodies like administrative tribunals or line ministries that um, have the authority to say that this Indigenous government is a government that would be recognized not only in Indigenous law, but also in Crown law or Aboriginal law, um, that would have the authority um, to be able to carry out whatever um, operations need to be there. Well, that leads us very well into the last question of the day, and that is, in the next 50 years, where do you see the duty to consult doctrine in Canadian law? Yeah, so, you know, I've been teaching 30 years now this year, which is so hard to believe. And uh, I've seen a lot of change. 
the uh, change has been slow in some respects. We can't forget that you know, 64% of kids in care in British Columbia are Indigenous, that over 80 to 90% of people in provincial prison populations in Saskatchewan are Indigenous, that we have low rates of educational outcomes, low rates of engagement in the uh, workforce, right? There's so many things that just pain me. Um, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has 94 calls to action that are very slow in being implemented. And we're seeing all of these young bodies around residential schools that are um, being revealed. And right, to, just 30 years on, I still think, what? We're still doing this? But on the other hand, Aboriginal treaty rights are recognized and affirmed. We have um, UNDRIP legislation. Um, there is a greater rising income in Indigenous communities, collectively speaking. Um, there are um, people getting their educations, even though they're not in the numbers that they should be. I'm inspired all the time as Indigenous and non-Indigenous students come to the law school and uh, and learn these things and, and then carry forward the tools and the perspectives to make the next generation even better. And so I expect over the next 50 years, more of the same. We're gonna to continue to be pained. Uh, there's gonna be things that hurt us that are, are very um, um, just damaging, but we're also gonna see inspiration and people making great strides and governments taking opportunity to recognize and affirm both um, Aboriginal law, but I also think we'll increasingly get to the place where we see Indigenous law as a part of our, our, our explicit constitutional law. And my hope would be that we would recognize Indigenous government, Indigenous jurisdiction as a part of our constitutional structure really explicitly as well. So that's a, kind of a mix as to what I think is going to happen over the next 50 years. Again, beware of the danger of a single story. Nuance is sacred. I expect uh, that we'll have a lot of continued nuance in our future. Thank you for joining us for this second episode of our podcast series on the Duty to Consult Doctrine. I'm Liz England, here with my colleagues Tasha DeBlanco and Zachary G. Tune in next time for a conversation with Sarah Mainville, who will explore what the duty to consult looks like from an Anishinaabe legal perspective. It will be available on the Centre for Constitutional Studies website at www.constitutionalstudies.ca. You can also stay current by following the Centre on Twitter. Just search for the Centre for Constitutional Studies.